Everybody listen to We're Not Wizards. Because we are the best. And we're not wizards. No matter what anybody says. Goodbye. Welcome to another episode of We Are Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for April. Do you smell smoke? Do you smell burning? Maybe you do. Maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's kind of, maybe we've got to run. Maybe we've got to dash. Or maybe it's because fire in the library is not just an idea not just a Kickstarter project, but it's actually here, it's sitting on the shelves. And if that's here, then that means maybe we need a fireman. No, in fact, you know what? We're better getting ourselves a miller, because joining me, (laughs) he's the master of mischief. He is the mauve game designer, purple-haired warrior that is here to talk about stuff and have a conversation and a general catch of it. It's Tony Miller. I don't even know what to do after that introduction. I just It's I, nearly <laughs> nearly every class in D and D except Rogue. It was masterful. Uh, very well done, sir. No, no, no. Are you well, sir? Oh, yeah, doing great. Doing great. Um having a really good time seeing uh something that i created actually out in the world and on amazon which is unbelievable to me uh, <laughs> but it's there how does it feel i mean because i deal with amazon i mean that's my job mm-hmm. you know i i phone up people in amazon and say help me and i know how much <laughs> it's almost like running a kickstarter campaign trying to get your game on Amazon in the first place. But to go from something which was kind of in your head to actually being able to type in to a big, huge e-commerce store and see it sitting there, is it still kind of a bit weird to kind of see it kind of there for sale? Um, I'm definitely not used to it. Um, I will say that I am fortunate and that I have... um, the other people involved in getting the game out onto shelves um, mm-hmm. really kind of knocked every aspect of it out of the park. Um, mm-hmm. The reason the game's on Amazon uh, is the hard work that Carla at Weird Giraffes is constantly putting in um, to make that happen. Um, the game's been doing really, really well, but um, without her at the forefront of things, I don't think we'd be where we're at. Um, and then Beth uh, Sobel with the artwork and Katie Cow in the graphic mm. design. Uh, the game is just gorgeous to look at. The production values are like super high. I opened my original copy um, at uh, BGG Con last year. Both yeah. myself and my co-designer John were there and Carla was at PAX Unplugged, but she sent us a copy 
uh, of the game so that we could open it together because she knew we would be in the same place at the same time. And wow. being able to actually like physically hold something that wasn't like a handcrafted prototype that I had made myself um, was a really just moving moment. And then now to see um, it hitting backers all over the world and see pictures online and um carla had the genius to include a best librarian card yeah so whoever wins uh, is encouraged to post a photo on social media with that and seeing those circulate around and having people tag me letting me know that like my game is being played all over the world is just overwhelming in the best possible way um it's it's like wow it really is a real thing now it's it's absolutely real and it's not just like you know please sir will you back my kickstarter project it's <laughs> you can go to amazon and go look for it now like it's there it's a real yeah. thing it's not it's not uh not just charity <laughs> do you still think it would be an idea sitting in your back pocket if it wasn't for kind of carla's involvement would you have taken the plunge yourself and have put it on to Kickstarter yourself? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I doubt it. Um, a lot of the logistics aspects of being a publisher, a lot of the things that Carla is absolutely amazing at mm. are things that I kind of dread. Um, she's kind of got it down to a science at this point like she knows how to work with the factories overseas mm -hmm. uh she knows how to do art direction if you've seen the games weird giraffe is weird giraffes is producing both what they have produced and what's coming in the future you yeah. know that carla can nail art direction like nobody's business um all of that kind of stuff are skills that i don't uh, currently have, not to say that I could never develop those skills, but mm. having somebody who already had them handle that side of it was, um, refreshing to say the least. Um, I think ultimately I believe in the game enough that had Carla passed on it and we had gotten to this point where it still hadn't been picked up, I think that I maybe would have taken a plunge on it because it's such a passion project for me. Um, I, I would say that um, as a rogue, mm -hmm. I would expect you to be multi-skilled. And I would expect oh. that I would expect this would just be kind of an eventual kind of par for the course, <laughs> really, that you would just say, you know, I can, I'm rolling my dice and there we go. We're just kind of, kind of doing, doing a Kickstarter. Um, with the way that Kickstarter is just now, because, um, you know, obviously Carla's next game kind of is going for a relaunch kind of this month. Yep. Um, is it still changing as a landscape? I mean, have you noticed? Oh. I, I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, Absolutely. I've noticed, and I don't know if, you know, you feel free to jump in and comment on this. I, I see... It's very, very unsure and very, very uneven. And I don't see something that I was going to have a sure bet on as necessarily being guaranteed that it's going to gonna go, go in a fund. And I don't know if this is where kind of Kickstarter's heading, if it is becoming more of a, of a pre-order store and it's relying on maybe some of the bigger, bigger titles. But I certainly, I, cert I did a check on 
the guys that have been on the show that were running Kickstarters, and there definitely mm-hmm. seems to be there seems to be guys that are kind of like doing themselves, running mm-hmm. themselves, seem to be struggling a bit more. There's mm-hmm. guys that are kind of signed up to middleweight publishers like Alley Cat Games and the likes mm-hmm. seem to be getting there and seem to be being quite strong once they've got a couple of games under the belt. And obviously still you've got your your bigger companies that still seem yep. to be kind of storming it through. And I don't know if you've seen kind of any difference I or any, notice anything. So what I've seen, I'm uh, I'm a super backer uh, for what that's worth. I back mm. a lot of games on Kickstarter. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed more than anything else is... Um, just simply fatigue. It seems like every Tuesday there's 10 new projects yeah. on Kickstarter that I want to put money towards, and I cannot put money towards all 10 of them. No. Um, Agreed. And it seems to have been a really big issue starting this year. Like, last year, um, like November, December time frame, I had a whole bunch of projects wrap up, and then it was quiet over the Christmas, like period because nobody wanted to have something up during christmas while everybody had their funds kind of already allocated for the holidays yeah and then january came one week into january and it's just been an onslaught ever since there's been something on kickstarter pretty much every day vying yeah. for my attention and my yeah. dollar and i think that what we're starting to see is uh companies crowd each other out and in that kind of scenario, it's really bad for the smaller publishers, especially the little guys, because yeah. they don't have as much of a track record. And so uh, even if the game looks like a sure thing, the company isn't one yet. And like, how can you establish a track record if you can't get started or get out the gates? Um, so it seems like there's a lot of companies that are kind of crowding each other out and i'm not even talking about like the gigantic kickstarters like the simon stuff or or card games about throwing burritos and felines blowing up like (laughs) those those kinds of games are just going to exist they've existed kind of as long as kickstarter has been a thing um those million dollar and multi-million dollar game campaigns just exist um but the smaller campaigns, the ones that um, I am most attracted to, um, or just the smaller companies that end up having gigantic campaigns, um, I'm looking at Leader Games and Vast and Root and yeah. their success that they've had. I mean, they're at like a million five now. Um, they end today. Like, their, their Root expansion ends today, and it's like a million five. Um, so... Like, it's not to say that the small companies can't succeed, it's just that it's harder for the smaller companies who don't have a track record to get a word in edgewise, um, it seems. There's just yeah. so many people asking for your dollar at this point. That And, I mean, to be honest, to be fair, being a UK backer, the mm-hmm. in levels, I mean, three years ago the exchange rate was completely different. Yeah. So for me... Going and seeing a game that was fifty pounds was thirty five dollars. You know, mm-hmm. seeing even a Simon game at say a hundred dollars was still only eighty dollars. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the exchange rate is almost—it's kind of more 
it's directly comparative. I mean, it's almost the same. I mean, a hundred, a hundred dollar game is still creeping up to like eighty five. You know, getting higher, mm-hmm. fifty dollar games up at like forty quid. So I mean, in those kind of prices, there are yeah. I mean, the crowded side of things mm-hmm. is interesting because I'm probably. <clears throat> I guess I'm trying to keep a finger on the pulse. I'm backing more games at a dollar and then deciding afterwards. And that's a terrible thing for maybe people to see. But you're not the only one doing that. And I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of creators still value that dollar, Hmm. but it doesn't create the buzz. It doesn't create the funded on day one. It doesn't create the, the perception of momentum. That, um, you know, we funded in three hours does. Um, so now some companies have started artificially deflating their asking price. Like, what constitutes funded? Well, less than we can actually make the game for. But if we say that we're funded in X amount of hours, then that means that we'll stay up front and everybody will pay more attention to it. So... It's it's one yeah. of those things where people are now trying to figure out exactly what the market wants. Like, do they only want to back winners? Like, does it have to already be a winner to get people to back it? Or um, are people kind of looking at all of the things that are out there? And like you and me now, I've started backing things at a dollar now because I want to uh, show my support uh, for people who are out there and creating stuff, especially yeah. the littler people. But if um you know they never fund that dollar didn't do much good <laughs> so it's it's yeah it's a ter- it's not um it's not the best situation but then again i can't be in the situation where i'm chucking 30 bucks 40 bucks here there and everywhere because yeah. as you said yourself you can go on today and there's like there's 10 15 projects just launching there's oh, guys yeah, launching projects all over the place and it is a <laughs> it's like a it's kind of like um not a it's become a lot more traffic and somebody's going to throw back with us and say, look, if we look at the stats for the, the, the year mm-hmm. as comparative, the same number of Kickstarters kind of came out. But definitely this year, um, and one thing I've seen in the last couple of months, the last year, and definitely into the beginning of this year, was this deflation of the target value of the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Now, I was just speaking to somebody just now and it'll become obvious when the episode goes out who that person is but they're a first time creator now their asking price for their target is thirty thousand dollars now i've now it's got little wooden meeples in it i've seen games that are doing more stuff which are asking for a, a, a lower target like you said so they can get the just funded badge and i'm wondering mm-hmm. if it's creating a false economy if people are looking at it and saying well you're offering all these miniatures and you've only got 25 grand. You're only asking for 25 grand. I thought yeah. that then creates the thing, is, is that how much the game plays? But there was um, there's games that have had their funding pulled, that they've cancelled the project. Yep. And they've been funded. And it's just Yeah, they've of... been funded and yanked themselves off of Kickstarter. Yeah, I've noticed that's that's something that was unlike heard of hmm. uh, in the past. Something that, yeah. like pulling a project that's already funded why would you do such a thing like you've got the money right well they weren't asking for the amount of money they actually needed to produce what they were asking for they were trying to get ahead of that curve and like on the one hand i understand why a creator would do that because there is this snowball effect 
people want to back a winner. And if you're yeah. already winning, you tend to build momentum and snowball. Um, but, um, it, it's not doing yourself any favors on the back end. And, uh, it wouldn't shock me at all to see some of these people that funded but didn't extremely overfund, um, either not be able to deliver on the game or having to go out of their own pockets to do so. Um, yeah, and, that's a real uh, danger. Yeah, that's the real danger is, is people. I know personally a couple of projects that funded and no more. And when you speak to them, you say, well, we lose 10% on the fees. Yeah. And, you know, I thought I was saving money by not using a pledge manager, which meant I collected shipping at the same time I was running the campaign. And then mm -hmm. shipping's taken up a huge trunk, which means I've had to dip into the savings in order to make the thing. Oh yeah, shipping has work. changed. Shipping has changed drastically. Um, yeah, with the uh, the the increase in rates pretty much everywhere due to mm. um, well, let's just say uh, unstable political actions in various locales in the world. Um, we've I, had I, I wouldn't be able to race. comment on that. I would yeah. not know what. I have no <laughs> idea. It's all like it's really, really stable here. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, no, no earthquaking or anything. No, it's nothing um, at all. I'm definitely not shaking like a leaflet at the camera. Just but, now, if you could see what I could see, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is that. There is that. Um, there is that whole kind of thing. I mean, um, the prices and things are kind of are kind of going up, um, but we don't want to talk. Like, why are we why are we even talking about Kickstarter knows it, and I keep bringing up all these topics all the time, mm -hmm. and you know it, and I know it. Um, mm -hmm. What's next for you then? Where do you what's go next? after? You know, where do you what's have to go after this good... after this inferno? That's a this really good question. Inferno. And what do you do? Well, there's um, there's a lot of pressure now. Um, you always hear you always hear people um, in the music industry, particularly, talk about their sophomore album. Yeah, like you have your first album that comes out, and you've worked on those songs forever. You've perfected those songs over you know many many years sometimes before the album itself actually gets picked up and produced and is out on the airwaves. And now yeah. suddenly they're like, okay, next. And now you have to, like, in a shorter amount of time, produce something that lives up to or even potentially surpasses what you've already done. And that's a big ask of anyone. Um, and I think um, anybody in any creative industry kind of gets hit with that. Like, okay, so you've done it once, you've proven you can do it, now what? Um, so what's there for me and uh, John, uh, my co-designer on Fire in the Library, we're still designing games together. Um, yeah. We have several games that we're still working on uh, and pitching around um, and uh, trying to uh, find homes for. Um, hopefully some of them will find homes that have been as uh, wonderful to work with as Carla was. Um, but uh, that's still a work in progress. Um, we have... Uh, a game that we brought to Unpub this year that's uh, based on the movie They Live, um, oh. which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and I'm about a decade older than John, uh, my co-designer, so John had never even heard of the movie before. <laughs> I was like, oh, we absolutely have to design a game based on this movie. Um, 
was uh, Nate Murray, who was with IDW at the time in their games division. It's one of his yeah. favorite movies. And we were just talking about it back and forth. And he was like, you know, I would pay good money to see a They Live board game. I absolutely need something like that. And I was like, I would love to do something like that. So I took it back to John and I'm like, we're doing this. And he goes, doing what? <laughs> we're, we're creating a game based on this movie. What movie? <laughs> You haven't seen They Live? Now, at this point, like, he's seen the movie. He owns a poster for the movie. Really? Um, he, he owns the movie. Like, we, I, I've totally indicted him in, uh, into, uh, sorry, I've totally inducted him into this cult of <laughs> indicted They Live fine. fanboys. No, indicted's fine. That'll work. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question just, you know, in relation to Fire in the Library, then? Sure. Are you... Are you you know you're talking about working on other projects mm-hmm. in terms of the retail tale for fire in the library does it make sense to chase that as far as possible and get into a distribution type thing or is it too are you going to need money to do another print run and then does that mean you're kind of cyclical you're kind of going back to kickstarter just like what root did you know you're, yeah, you're going I back think- to kickstarter to kind of get more copies to put it into distribution. Yeah, given the reception um, and and Carla can definitely talk about this more than me. She's definitely the business person, but hmm. after some conversations with her and um, just kind of looking at how it's been received uh, out in the world, um, I think it would make sense. I know that she's currently looking at um, an expansion and yeah. uh, what we can do in that regards. And so uh, John and I, when we uh, signed Fire in the Library, we had like a whole bunch of extra content that we'd already created mm-hmm. um, that still needed to go through development and stuff, but when we did the first Kickstarter, we went, okay, we're we're ending what we're working on here so that we can refine all of this and we will call this the base game. Yeah. Everything else is expansion content that we can use later if we need to. And so all of that stuff is still out there. Um, we still have a whole bunch of different uh, tools and different ideas for different types of books or uh, other things that could happen um, inside the game. Uh, and so that's one of the things that Carla's working on now amongst her many other projects is uh, kind of developing that in the background. I do believe that um, her goal is definitely to get into distribution. Um, some places like Barnes and Noble um, yeah. have expressed some interest. I was going to say that. Look here. Yeah. Do you want a Do you want a Do you want a board game, a card <laughs> game that's shaped in a book? Come on. Do you need and me to pitch about, it to you? Yeah, and it's about saving books. Like, it, it really, I know, the idea seems to kind of sell itself particularly to them, but, um, but yes, be... like, they're one of the... I was going to say, you could be passive-aggressive and you could say, actually, this place does look very flammable. It'd be a horrible shame if something, so you weren't <laughs> going to take our deal. Uh-huh. This place could go up like a candle. Oh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Threatening them is a sure way to get my way. Um, but just subtly threatening them. That's a passive-aggressive you know, Not, not kinda, overtly, you know. yeah. Yeah, you're not um, going to, you know, you'd get through, you know, a good a lawyer would make sure you didn't spend really much oh, time yeah. in prison. As long as I was, yeah, as long as I was very careful with my wording, I might be able to defend <laughs> that claim. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think distribution and I think the game does have a longer tail than the Kickstarter. Um, I recently on my podcast spoke with, um, 
Travis Severance, who runs Millennium Games out of uh, Rochester, New York. And one of the things that we talked about was the myth that once a Kickstarter's over, all of the copies of that game that will ever be sold have been sold. Yeah. Um, not everybody's on Kickstarter. Not everybody has a has access to Kickstarter or even like goes there to look at things. They're content to wait for it to come to retail. And if it never comes to retail, then it never goes anywhere. But the idea that um, a game ends its shelf life once its Kickstarter's over and nobody else on the planet is at all interested in purchasing that game is folly. Um, so. I do think it has um, a longer um, longer lifespan than just the Kickstarter, and I think that uh, the plan would definitely be to go back to Kickstarter with an expansion uh, for all the people who are already on board and a reprint of the base game mm-hmm. for all the people looking to get on board in almost exactly the same way that uh, Leader Games and a lot of other companies now do it. Um, the smaller companies... Uh, here's more of that content you love, and if you missed it last time, here's an entry ramp for you. I think it's a really consumer-friendly way to go about doing it. Do you think, um, distribution companies are missing a trick by maybe not engaging with Kickstarter maybe as much as they could? I mean, I don't hear of many people kind of saying, you know, very excitedly, you know, we're now funded... You're going uh-huh. to get your game, but also it's going to be appearing on a store near you. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's the next kind of so, natural level. Because to me, okay, to me, Kickstarter is also a way of checking the viability of a game, whether there's a, a hunger in the market for uh-huh. potentially that particular style of game. Yeah. So if somebody goes ahead and you get whether it be a 1,000 people, whether it be 5,000 people going and backing your game, that's a mm-hmm. pretty good, you know, it's a pretty good case, a pretty good argument yeah. to say, well, maybe this is a game that's worthwhile taking a chance on the retail. Or is Kickstarter too niche? Uh, no, I don't think Kickstarter is too niche. I think some projects on Kickstarter are too niche. Mm. I think Kickstarter covers a wide variety of projects and some of the more... Um, art-based projects or like the um punk rock pop-up board game projects like grant rodiak runs Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. with hyperbole are um that kind of project that might be a little bit too niche for a commercial market but i don't think every kickstarter project um is that way i think there's definitely place for that and um Right now, I think the the only way or the primary way that you see Kickstarter games in game stores is game store owners who are savvy and on Kickstarter. Uh, yeah. The the retailers themselves, uh, not distributors, completely bypassing distribution in most cases. Um, whether it's backing at a retailer level at the Kickstarter so that they can have it in store like when it mm. launches for everybody else, or um, calling up those uh, creators and saying, hey, I'd like to buy, you know, X number of games or a case of games or whatever to have on my shelves could you cut me a deal mm-hmm. um in the grand scheme of things going directly to a retailer rather than um through distribution is kind of better for both the retailer and the small company um and distributors of course don't want that to become the trend but there's a lot of game store owners i'm in portland oregon now and there are two major game stores here rainy day games and guardian games mm-hmm. and both of them regularly back 
um, like hundreds of Kickstarters every year so that they can have games that were on Kickstarter on their shelves the same day that backers have them. Um, and, <laughs> and in some uh, cases before. <laughs> and in some cases before, yes. And um, the uh, and uh, Travis at Millennium Games is the same kind of thing. Uh, he talks about how much time he spends on Kickstarter looking at things. And like kick track and Kickstarter popularity are ways that you can actually, like you said, gauge the interest in a game. And yeah. if a game, you know, comes out and has, you know, 5,000 backers, there's probably another 5,000 people in the world who would be willing to buy that game, especially if they play the game with the previous 5,000 backers and find that they want it and then can't find it anywhere. Well, as a retailer, it's really kind of behooves you to go, well, you can find it in my store. Yeah. Like, it may not be on Kickstarter anymore, but <laughs> you can come here and I guarantee you will find it here. Um, yeah. And so... A lot of retailers are now using it as kind of like a value add, because what is the incentive to go buy it in a local game store for MSRP rather than buying it on Amazon or buying yeah. it from one of the deep discounters? And yeah, being that game store who can say, like, you saw this hot thing on Kickstarter that you can't get anywhere else now because it's out of print. I've got it. Come get it here. Um, is a service ad that retailers can use that other parts of the industry don't really have access to. Um, well, you've got you've also got the Kickstarter exclusives as well, and I mean, I remember yeah. Ri Rising Sun mm -hmm. being one of these games where people were just like, "I'm I'm not going to get this on retail because there was such a disparity between what you were getting in retail based mm -hmm. on what you were getting with the Kickstarter version." Because yeah. the Kickstarter version, you were getting the feast. Yeah, you it's know, mind with blowing. The with the retail version, you were getting the sandwich, and that yeah, was kind of and, and, and I'm good. not. And I'm not a huge fan of Kickstarter exclusives. Like, as a backer, yeah. they really turn me off in general. Um, I don't like it that I could get a game and someone else could get a game. And because of where we purchased said game, we have completely different experiences. Um, I really, I personally don't like that. Even if the, even if it's to my advantage, even if I walked home with the feast, um, you know, when I, like, if I were to talk about uh, playing Rising Sun with all of the Kickstarter stuff to somebody who picked it up in retail, they we wouldn't even be talking about the same game. Like, yeah. it would be a different experience completely. Yeah. And I just think that in the long term, like, in the short term, it appears to work. I mean, Simon makes tons of money pretty much every Kickstarter they put up. And yeah. it hasn't slowed down. I, I think it's slowed down a little bit, but it hasn't slowed down Kickstarter exclusives overall. Um, you know, some people will use them and some people won't. I think the market as a whole uh, kind of is against them in the same way they're against early birds at this point. Uh, a lot of people don't like early bird pledges. If you back on day one, you get it cheaper, or you get this extra thing, yeah, or whatever. Don't. I think there's a lot of people who have kind of soured on that as well. And um, I think the Kickstarter um, base, the Kickstarter user base, at this point, isn't all brand new. Like, there are new people kind of coming to it periodically, but a lot of them are like me, who's been there since Alien Frontiers was on Kickstarter you know, way back in the day. Like, I've been using Kickstarter now for several years and yeah. am a lot savvier about what I back and what I don't. And I know a lot of the warning signs when it comes to a project that will fund or won't fund. Um, it's not as much of a mystery to me anymore. Um, although, 
lately, there are some, like, um, Gilhova's High Rise that just squeaked past the finish line on the final day that seems mystifying to me that, uh, somebody with his track record, um, had to go down to the wire like that. I, I really didn't. I watched that myself. I didn't, I didn't kind of understand that. I, it kind of, uh, it was strange because, um, I know Gil does a lot of podcasts, but I maybe heard him on podcasts I wouldn't have normally heard him on, basically doing the publicity around to try and build up the noise for High Rise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he was on. Um, I know he was on. Um, yeah, as I say, I heard him on a couple of podcasts, kind of talking about High Rise, kind of saying, mm-hmm. "Well, you know, you can back it here," and I'm like going, "Why is he having to talk about this?" And it's like you're checking out the campaign, and it's like, "Oh, he's this is not." This is just yeah. cruising along, so it's this is kind of a it's kind of a strange kind of situation. Um, in terms of yourself, with kind of going forward, what are we expecting from you? What kind of games are we expecting from? I mean, are you are you inching towards, you know, your Rogue One spectacular with Darth Vader at the end and lots of hmm. special effects? Or have you kind of found your your niche to say, look, Fire in the Library went really, really well. Let's see what else I can put out there that's maybe of a similar kind of weight to that. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or have you, or as usual, is your mind kind of going, and I know you with the way you work, your mind goes at a million <laughs> miles an hour, and you've probably got 15 different ideas on the go all at once. Yeah, I... One of the things that I want to do as a designer is I don't really want to design the same game twice. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some designers who uh, really like to take an idea and then take it to all the different extremes that that idea can go to and refine it and, and make various games out of that. And I would prefer not to do that. Um mm-hmm. I'm an omni-gamer. I like heavy games. I like light games. Mm-hmm. I like uh, playing games with my son. Um, so there's a lot of different weights and styles of game that I would like to design. Um, probably the biggest is, uh, I want to design a co-op and, um, right now they live is my co-op design that I'm working on actively. Mm. Um, because I personally love co-ops pandemic kind of brought me into hobby gaming, um, as, a um, when it first came out, the idea of a cooperative game was something that I had never heard of and couldn't yeah. wait to check it out. And being the gearhead that I am, immediately I started like de- dissecting it and trying to figure out how it was. And then I got into Sentinels of the Multiverse and and then like Aeon's End and uh, Spirit Island and like co-op games are just something that I really love. So I want to create a co-op game. Uh, Fire in the Library is a pressure luck game, and I yeah. love pressure luck games. Like, Ink and Gold and Can't Stop were two of the games that got me, like, really deep into the hobby. Um, you know, No Thanks to some extent is a pressure luck game. So I wanted to design a pressure luck game, and that's kind of where Fire in the Library came from. So, um, working on a whole bunch of different things, um, what I have determined is that myself as a designer... Um, going extremely heavy and extremely mathy is not to my forte. Right. Um, my, my co-designer is much better at that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if he was to uh, list his favorite games, it would include uh, several splatter titles, lots of Spielworks, and 18xx mm. stuff. Right, so, okay. so he's very much the math guy, and I'm uh, very much the uh, initial idea theme integration, integrating the two, wrapping things together, and kind of creating that, and then pitching it as something that could be turned into a product rather than just a game. Um, we're both really theoretical, so sometimes we dwell too much in that, um, but ultimately, um, I don't want to make the same game twice, and I want to keep making different games. I have some ideas for kids' games that I'd like to make so that I could play them with my son, and I don't know yeah. if those would ultimately be things I would, like, pitch to Haba or Blue Orange or one of the other companies that's more friendly with uh making kids games or if i would try to do those uh on my own as smaller projects that maybe i could take a bite out of but um i just want to create um and it's been so it's been a lot of work getting to the point where a game is on shelves and people are playing it all over the world but I've not really done anything creatively that's as rewarding as going through all of that work. And so at this point, like, I've got a taste of it and I want it again. And so we're mu we've been much more focused um, with our design. We used to kind of just be mad scientists and, you know, design 15, mm. 20 games at a time. And now we have three games that we're specifically focusing on. And none of those other design ideas are gone. Like, they're all written down and we'll come back to them eventually at some point. Yeah, but, yeah. But right now, it's very much about focusing on this game and turning it into something that a publisher can look at and go, Yep, I believe in this. Let's put our backing behind it and get it out into the world. Um so that's kind of where our focus has shifted. With your experience in Fire in the Library and the business side of it as well, are you looking at things from a business point of view as well as just a creative point of view with your experience? Are you having to think a little bit more like that in terms of, okay, this is the design, but we have to take this into account, you know, in terms it's, of costs and components and stuff like that. Yeah, it's something that, that I think is kind of inevitable um, because designers design games and publishers publish products. Hmm. And the difference between a game and a product can be immense. Um, and it's one of the things that, like, with Fire in the Library, slowly refining what everything was, how everything looked, how people interacted with it... Um, with Carla developing it and us changing things based on feedback or just figuring things out as we did things, um, or as we, we changed components and stuff became, um, a really interesting part of the design process. I'd never really done development. Um, and, uh, Carla was definitely the developer of fire in the library, but, uh, you can't help but turn a game into a product without stepping into the developer realm. Um, and one of the things look, uh, one of the things we're looking at with one of our games, uh, Stocko Trucks, is that right now we use basically poker chips as the money. Mm -hmm. And, like, really asking ourselves, like, so 
It's great, and it feels really good at the end of a payout round to rake a huge pile of poker chips over to yourself as your earnings for this round. Like, that feels really good. Tactilely, it's wonderful. Like, it's a part of the game that if we took it out, people would definitely miss it. But can you package, you know, how many how many money tokens can you package in a game? What's the price point of this game? Like, realistically, what is the uh, amount of money I would pay to have the experience that this game offers? And that's a different question. Um, It's certainly a question I would not have asked myself prior to going through uh, the full um, experience of getting Fire in the Library to product stage. Um... And there are some things with Fire in the Library that all of us kind of, like, wish we did, wish we had caught or wish we had done differently, and there are things we're keeping in mind now, um, as far as things that we could, we could do with the next iteration of things. But, you know, if, uh, if Stocko Trucks is a $35 experience, as far as a board game goes, you can't package a full set of poker chips inside of it. Um, that's way too much. So what are you, uh, replacing it with? The cheapest option is probably a score track, uh, yeah. consideration wise, and it adds the fewest components. It's, uh, probably the cheapest option, but it doesn't have that same tactile feel of raking in your earnings. Um, you know, is it good enough? Does it make the game or does it lessen the game experience to make that switch? And is that just a compromise that you have to make? And you tell people later on, you know, play with poker chips, it's better. You know, once they've actually bought the game with the score track. I don't know, you know. I honestly don't know what the right answer to that is. But those are the kinds of questions that come up now in our design process. Um, You know, how much is too much? How big does this game need to be? Or um, one of the things that we used to do is just throw everything in the kitchen sink at a design as early as we could. And then we would kind of cut away everything that we didn't want or that didn't work or that wasn't useful and now uh it's much more of a let's because fire in the library was the first of our designs that was picked up and we approached it in a different way we went okay let's create this fundamental like bedrock foundation that the game is based on which in fire in the library is the whole element of uh it gets harder to score points as the game goes on but the things that you draw are worth more points to compensate that whole mechanic, that whole mechanism existed from the very core beginning of the game. And Mm -hmm. it was the foundation that everything else kind of tied into. And so we're trying to do that with our current designs now as well. Like, what is the core, like, bedrock thing of this game? And then looking at everything else to try to determine, like, do we need to add anything or is this enough? And so we're kind of building in layers now or stages rather than throw everything at it, try it out, and then slowly cut things away. Do you think that um, it'd be a useful thing for education of the backers as well? Because I know that, I mean, you can talk about the... When somebody when somebody jumps into the group, like, say, a Kickstarter group, and they say, I'm going to create a game, people say, go to Jamie Stegmar's blog, go to mm-hmm. James Matthews' blog, you know, look at all mm-hmm. these designers and developers... Do you think that the reason, one of the reasons that we're maybe having potentially the issues that we're having on the Kickstarter platform is because the backers themselves aren't given the opportunity to maybe be educated about the game production process? That 
you can't build the game that you are trying to back for $20,000. That's just not possible. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that needs to be something that needs to be maybe taken in consideration? Otherwise, this is going to crash. We are just going to end up with like five or six of the main companies using Kickstarter as a pre-order store and other businesses might go somewhere else or end up just trying to sign their works to like publishers instead. I think I think educated consumers is a benefit to everyone, but I don't know what the appropriate avenue for that to take place is. Mm. Um, you know, like you said, there are resources out there already. Jamie's got several blogs. James Matthew has several blogs. Yeah. Like they've both written extensively on the subject, and they're not the only ones. Um, I I think that um, like when we started breaking into board games, um, when we started my podcast that I'm on. One of the things that we were noticing was that uh, there weren't many podcasts that were geared towards people in the industry at the time. It was all Um, Mm consumer-centric. It was very much, what are the hot games? What are we playing? Let's Mm -hmm. review various games. Some uh, podcasts looked at older games. Some podcasts looked at the Bleeding Edge. Some looked at, you know, the rare games coming out of Japan and Taiwan and Germany and various other places all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was very consumer-focused. But it was consumer-focused in the um, consumption uh aspect yeah, of it. Yeah. It was very much what should you spend your money on? Um was the kind of education uh that consumers were being given. They weren't really being given a lot of education on um what does your money buy you? Yeah. And I think that's kind of the um conundrum that the board game industry finds itself in now. Um, I know that a lot of the bigger publishers have started pushing price points up um, in general. What used to be a $50 game is now a $60 game. Yeah. What used yeah, to be a $20 that. game is now a $30 game. What used to be a $10 game is now a $15 game. And we've seen this in other industries, like the cost of a um, a CD, the cost of a DVD into a Blu-ray, the cost of... Um, you know, the, the cost of video games and the modern day consoles, like $60 is just an accepted price point now is what you pay. You don't yeah. pay less than that unless it's in the bargain bin. Um, and so I think that uh, that's one of the things that a lot of the larger companies um, like Renegade and um, Stronghold with all of their partnerships and all of the, the larger players on the scene have started doing um, to try to make that work for for consumers how much can we charge for a game because every single bit that we get means that we can make a better game with better components but we also have to you know make a living doing it too if we're a company you know um and we're one of those industries where a lot of the people who are active in it still have day jobs because it yes. does not pay the bills. The no, margins are too th- yeah. the margins are too thin even with raising uh the prices kind of across the board. Um there's only so many people who can make a full-time living doing game design, game publishing. Um you know, the artists are doing pretty good because we have to pay them. Um so I'm glad that 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 somebody's at least making out. Um and making a living in the industry. Um, yeah. But I don't know how many of those spots there are either. Um, you know, it's 
It's one of those things, having an educated consumer base would be helpful, because we wouldn't have to explain ourselves quite as often as to why not every game has all of the chrome and all of the bits and all of the yeah, other thing. Yeah. I mean, when when Stegmeier Games puts out something with the component quality of Wingspan, which is a very solid design, but the component quality of that game elevates it to a different tier than yeah. just its design would. Fire in the Library is similar, like the component quality and the art um, and the graphic design uh, elevate that game above just the uh, prototype version that I was walking around pitching back in the day. Um, you know, what What does that cost? How much can we charge for that? And do consumers realize how much it costs? Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. like we said earlier, um, retailers and uh, smaller companies, uh, much like uh, Tim Fowers has kind of pioneered, um, you know, Tim doesn't go through distribution. He just doesn't do dis distributors. No, no. Everything's, everything's direct to retail, and he makes out a little bit better for every copy that he sells, and the retailer makes out a little bit better for every copy that they sell by eliminating the, distri the distributor from that supply chain. But that means Tim has to interact with all of those different retailers all over the world and yeah, various stuff. And, yeah. you know, there's only so much time in the day for one person to manage all of those relationships, which is why distributors started in the first place. Exactly. So, you know, it's it's either time or money one way or another um, that you have to invest. And um, getting a return on investment for your time is a little bit harder these days than getting a return on investment for your money. We're we're in a we're in an exciting time. We're in an interesting time. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's interesting to see kind of what's going to happen with the hobby. It's going to be interesting to see what's going to be happening to yourself as mm -hmm. well, in terms of you know what's going to happen. With, I'm I'm really interested to see what you do with they live. Mm -hmm. Um, you do, you know. Let's touch on. It's the last thing the you you dropped in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about the podcast itself, Breaking Into Board Games, which you've been on for a while now? Yeah, you see, yeah. We've you're got one of the old guard, aren't you? <laughs> it seems like that at this point. We've, we've got three full seasons, which is three years. Um, yeah. We're in the middle of season four at this point. We're a bi-weekly podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so, we just recorded episode 91 last night, I think it was. Um, so we're quickly approaching episode 100 uh, wow. in a bi-weekly podcast. But um, the entire thing kind of started because as a brand new game designer and um, I needed something that would give me quick info dumps about the industry and how people got into the industry because it seemed like magic. Or some sort of like, you know, you went to the crossroads at midnight and sold your soul to the devil to be allowed to make games. Um, so, like, I wanted to demystify that. I wanted to know what it was. And so I love talking to people. So talking to people seemed like the first thing that I should do as far as getting that information. But talking to people one-on-one -on -one was really slow really slow going not that yeah. there's anything wrong with talking to people one-on-one -on -one. i love those kinds of interactions but when you're looking for information you kind of need to cast as wide a net as you can yeah so about um not quite four years ago ian uh gill and i all met at origins 
um, under different circumstances. I met Ian at a publisher speed dating event. Uh, we were both designers who were pitching our designs, and we happened to have tables next to each other. So in one of the five-minute periods where there wasn't a publisher at either of our tables, uh, we went ahead and gave each other our pitches and uh, both got excited about each other's games and played each other's games over the weekend and everything and kind of became friends that way. And then Gil, at the time, was working on the networks. Yes. And um, over the course of that Origins weekend, I played the networks uh, as a two-player, three-player, and four-player game. Um, I played all three of those different player counts in that one weekend because I liked the game that much. Um, so, like, the week after Origins, Gil wrote a blog that I think is still up on uh, gilhova.net about what he wanted in a podcast. And uh, Gil was a sound uh, engineer in a previous life, and he still does a lot of editing. Um, yeah. He's currently on Ludology, and he does the editing for that podcast. He used to edit yeah. uh, Board Game Insider with um, Stephen Bonacore and Ignacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he edited our podcast as well up until this season uh, when he decided to devote himself completely to Ludology, understandably. Um, but... Uh, he wanted a podcast that was informational, that you could listen to on a commute. It needed to basically fit within an hour. Um, and he wanted it to be edited. And he wanted it to actually focus on something other than the random tangents that a lot of podcasts go on. Now, yeah. I personally love random tangents, which is one of the reasons why I love this podcast so much. But, Thank you. Yes, it's one of my favorite things on Earth, is to get somebody excited and just let them go and see what they talk about. Yep. But um, but when you're creating a podcast for information rather than entertainment, uh, there's a different um, direction to kind of go in. Yeah. And so Ian contacted Gil and said, hey, I absolutely loved your blog. Do you want to start a podcast with me? And Gil went, well, that could be interesting. And then Ian contacted me and said, hey... You know, we were talking about this thing that Gil wrote, and Gil and I want to start a podcast. Would you like to be on it? And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. What do I need to do? I've never been on a podcast. And they're like, oh, well, you just need to show up and talk. And it's like, oh, well, I've got that covered. <laughs> You're not going to, I don't need to develop any skills to make that happen. And uh, at that point, we just started kind of talking about what we wanted to do, and we specifically wanted to focus on um, the audience being people looking to get into the industry yeah. and we wanted to interview people who were in the industry about how they got there aspects mm. of the industry that they're experts about yeah. um and uh just in general create something informative and we hope also entertaining that people can listen to that can kind of demystify all this stuff and in the process we figured we would benefit a whole bunch because we could learn from all of these cool people that we had on uh, all of the things that they knew. Yeah. So yeah, there was a there was a selfish motivation behind it. I'm not going to well, lie. It's fantastic. Um, it's fantastic. It's like, we'll, we'll, we'll get them all to come to us, and then if other people benefit, that's great. Um, <laughs> but you can have it's the you can have the little conversations before and after the show. We right. can ask them that you know tell us the tell us the secrets. Yeah. Kind of thing, which is kind of yeah. what you, which is kind of what you want to do. Um. I'm aware I'm taking up an awful lot of your time, but um, oh. um, if 
people want to keep an eye on you where you exist mm-hmm. on the internet webs if they're looking at breaking into board games if they want to just stalk you down with your little roguish ways and your purple hair Tony has got the most fabulous purple <laughs> hair in fact yeah. in fact I think when you got your we're not wizards t-shirt mm-hmm. I tried to I specifically try to match Yes, it is purple. one of the most wonderful things ever, and um, the uh, the purple hair has been an inspiration to many. Apparently, um, yeah. the purple quiver that is out on the market, the quiver card carrying case, yeah. they actually Pantone matched my <laughs> hair to create the color of purple that they use for that um, oh, for that product. So yes, uh, the purple has kind of become a trademark at this point. I couldn't get rid of it if I wanted Maybe. to. Um, but it does make it really easy for people to find me at conventions. And since I love talking to people, that yeah. works out really well in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> and if people want to find you on the internet, where can we find you? Um, the easiest place is at Bearded Rogue on Twitter. Um, if you are at all interested in the podcast, you can look up at Breaking Into BG on yeah. Twitter. Um Either myself uh, or my co-hosts, Ian, or our new publisher host, Dan, um, Dan Letzring of Letterman Games, uh, will respond or answer or uh, chat with you from that account. But me personally, Bearded Rogue all the way. Awesome. Awesome. Um, If you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, then go to the internet. Don't go near Twitter. My Twitter's destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. (laughs) Yes, but it was a self-destruction, so it was you get to take credit for it at least. I lit, I lit the blue touch paper and I stepped back and people are going to be listening and going, what? It's like, just don't. But you can find us anywhere else, you know, <laughs> um, you know, Facebook, We're Not Wizards, the website, we'renotwizards.com, the blog, we'renotwizards.blogspot.com. Um, we have recently put up a video first thoughts on Vindication by Orange Nebula and I actually decided to put my face on there stupid man Um, Uh, it's a fantastic game though it is a a fantastic game and I gave some first thoughts on it which you can find on youtube.com forward slash c forward slash we're not wizards tabletop podcast you can find us on on the podcast catchers which is your sticker stitcher your speaker your acast your pod pod knife your knife cast your cast off your anything with pod and anything with casting that you can find us there as well you can email us magic at we're not wizards.com if you want to um if you like us there's a couple of things you can do um if you like tony you know what to do is tell other people that you've listened tonight and you enjoyed the show and then that'll help us spread the other thing you can do is if you're feeling a little bit devilish a little bit cheeky you can head over to Apple Podcasts and you can drop us a subscription, you can drop us a rating, and you can drop us a review. If you are going to be giving us a rating or a review, don't give us 10 stars because it makes me big-headed. But don't give us one star because it makes me cry. And, you know, after the day I've had today, I could do without any more tears. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's average... And we are decidedly average, but the person who's not been average tonight, rather wonderful, rather fantastic. The amazing, he's like, he's just, you know, keep an eye on this chap. Listen to him on Breaking Into Board Games. Get a copy of Fire in the Library because you can because it's on Amazons. It's Mr. Tony Miller. Thank you very, very much, sir.
Thank you for having me. Um, it's only two more things to do. First thing is to remember we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Tony? Absolutely not. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So this is goodbye from Tony. Say goodbye, Tony. Goodbye, everybody. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe. Roll sixes. And whatever you do, don't think you're being a smart arse and put a clever kind of status on Twitter and then, you know, set it free and then watch it hit stupid numbers of, like, interactions and then realise you've just broken your phone. But until the next time, it's a lesson learned. I'll not be inspirational again, I promise. But until the next time, goodbye. A wizard is never late. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Mm-hmm.